We left off with some preliminary remarks about um, viewing the practice as a, a kind of re-education, where self-understanding, self-knowing, the verb, the learning goes on in each moment, at least potentially. And then that's its value. It's not that we uh, store it up. Um, it's just there's some immediate seeing in the present moment. And there can be learning involved. Much of it, especially if this gets going for you, not in words. But somehow there's something in us that's intelligent and begins to learn. And linking that with the idea of intimacy of practice, Refresh your memory. Someone asked a great Japanese master named Dogen, what is this enlightenment? Can you hear me in the back? It's clear? Back row? Uh, enlightenment, awakening, and he said, in intimacy with all things. Just simply, intimacy with all things. I heard this many years ago, and for some reason, as perhaps you know, sometimes something sticks with you. A phrase, a particular way of putting things. Uh, this one has stayed with me for many, many years, and it's been very, very helpful. I hope it's of some use to you. Uh, it's a very concise way of comprehensively characterizing a lot of stuff called Buddha Dharma. And so what is being suggested is that the practice is the practice of intimacy. And some of that, uh, I, I think there were some hints at what that means, but we'll go into it more deeply uh, this evening. But first, a little more about this self-knowing and learning how to live uh, and why why do we make such a fuss about uh, viewing daily life here on a retreat as so important and not seeing it as the real world out there and whatever you think this is, but rather seeing prior to all practices, all dharmas, all doctrines of any persuasion, of any religion, of any sect, non-sect, is life. And quite simply, we're here to live. It's just perhaps the most obvious truth there is. Why am I allowed to live? Okay, then, of course, serious questions come out of that. What is it to live? What does that mean? How am I to live? Um, Self-knowing in action and learning how to live are the same thing. That is, as you live your life out, and... People do this without ever having heard of meditation. You, people, one phrase I've learned from the school of hard knocks. Sort of as you get older, you learn certain things. Uh, yes. Uh, what this is, is the intentional, uh, the intent to awaken as we live our life and anything that happens to us 
is, has the potential for helping to awaken us. In this sense, the world exists in order to set us free. In addition to all the many wonderful reasons to be alive, everything that we do has the potential to help us set us free. And so a yogi's view is to see it that way. It's not two different views. And what I was trying to suggest is that the ordinary activities that make up a retreat, clearly sitting and walking, are featured. And we're not suggesting they be neglected in any way, hardly. They're precious. But uh, just as when we're home, we have a life here, a daily life. We do pretty much all the things that we do when we're home, only few, much less of it, in some cases, hardly at all. Um, again, why? Uh, there are a number of factors which I consider really important. One is that uh, if we are to have a genuine lay practice that has vitality, that isn't um, anemic, that isn't a shadow of a, a kind of poor imitation of a monastic practice, where we're neither lay people or monastics. My sense is that happens, and it's not uh, now and then. We wind up being neither a monk or a nun, nor fully living out a lay life. And so for whatever reason, right now it looks as if people like ourselves, with jobs, families, school, etc., uh, are very drawn to this practice and have a lot of energy. Uh, look, you've come here for a week during very hot days and you're sitting and walking. Uh, would you say that's the average person wants to do that? Okay, so there's something that brought you here and keeps you here. And it's a, this intention to awaken is one way of looking at it. Now, I got a few notes which were, were people were confused by that, as if, does this mean I'm not here with the right motives and I shouldn't be here? I don't know that I came here to awaken. Um, it doesn't matter. I've discovered this. I don't know what uh, teachers say, other teachers, but I've discovered this over the years. Whatever brought you here or even brought you to the practice, I've found, that isn't as important as what happens because I've seen people who come with very, very highfalutin ideals and uh, really idealistic about what practice is going to do. I'm going to attain complete, uh, unexcelled, full enlightenment. And, you know, a few years later, they uh, uh, have nothing to do with meditation. Other people have come, I just want to lower my blood pressure. I don't want to hear anything about all this, you know, about awakening, learning how to live. Don't, it gives me a headache. I just want, <laughs> just want my blood pressure to go down. And they wind up in Burma and Thailand. So, you know, so who's to say? Uh, you know, what brought us here? Whatever gives you the energy, I'm all for it. Uh, and then allow the practice to unfold because the learning that comes out of it, quite naturally, affects us all dif differently. And uh, each person's journey or lack of it uh, is, is to be determined. Uh, life is fascinating that way. You think I have any idea how I wound up here? <laughs> I mean, I could give you a nice psychosocial, rational, I did this and I didn't have that, and my mommy and my... But uh, it's not all... In, in a more honest mode, I don't feel that's convincing at all. I'm just... I'm here, and I started doing these things, and 
okay? So it's a little mysterious to me. But what I'm trying to suggest is that we have to learn how um, to weave our life when we go back to that aspect of living. This is life. The real world, this is a real world. There are challenges here that we don't have at home. Sitting for hours on end, sometimes it releases stuff that you don't want to see. And then you have, here you have four cheerleaders, you know, encouraging you to keep doing that. Uh, and it's going to get worse. <laughs> We've just been practicing shamatha, just calm down, concentrate. Uh, tomorrow the instructions change, and as many of you know, or some of you are already doing it, uh, whatever happens, that's what our practice is. And if you get quiet for an extended period of time, it's an invitation for the mind to spew forth what's in it. Sometimes at very deep levels, stuff you didn't know was there or that's really unwanted, and there it is. Uh, but you're in the right place for that to happen. But what I'm suggesting is uh, mindful eating, mindful everything we do here. This is a safe place, uh, a place that uh, we can practice bringing wakefulness into everything we do because it's a simplified environment. We have very few responsibilities. I mean, your yogi job is really not much. <laughs> you know, and uh, some of the skills or motivation that perhaps we can learn here about seeing life as, uh, as, as one event, ongoing, and that sometimes uh, the slice of life that we're concentrating on happens at a retreat center, and what's emphasized is, uh, is sitting and walking in a, a good deal of silence. And at other times, it's... Um, uh, at a busy office somewhere when you get home. To be able to see uh, life as a whole, W-H-O-L-E. And this is a good place, perhaps, I hope, to uh, enable that idea to take root. And that's why I don't teach at the end of the retreat integration, a short talk, uh, because there's nothing to integrate. There's just life. It's not like this is something or other, and then there's the so-called real world. Now, I understand it's hard not to think that way. Remember, we, uh, this I, I saw as uh, a, a field hospital in combat. You know, we come crawling in here, wounded in relationship and jobs, and, okay, and many of us don't want to go back out there. Fine, there's no one way to live your life, but uh, this is an opportunity for us to develop certain um, ways of looking at what happens to us in the protected support that uh, this wonderful retreat center has, uh, makes possible. Uh, and so, and also what was suggested is when you do your yogi job, let's say, wholeheartedly, it isn't just uh, to turn you into it like in the Soviet Union, they used to have all these propaganda, the happy worker, you know, uh, going off to work with a sickle, you know, being cis. <laughs> You know, just being thrilled to, to cut down wheat and with a big smile singing in a you know, peasant outfit. And, uh, it's more than just uh, being efficient. It's not just efficiency training. Uh, because if you, intimacy of practice is when there's no separation uh, between you and what you're doing. And if you recall, the way that comes about is not by forcing something that we think is intimate to happen. Uh, that wouldn't be it. But rather noticing separation, seeing it, seeing how 
we do one thing, but something else is in the mind, and we're not fully there. Uh, in today's go-around, in the, in the group, um, uh, some people had resistance to their job, some uh, really had no problem with their job. And so, of course, if there's resistance, that's where your practice is. It's not an impediment. It's an area where energy is held captive and can be liberated if you're willing to open to it and receive it and allow it to uh, expend itself. It runs itself out. Awareness is a very, very remarkable quality. Uh, it has, uh, some of you, will say, some of you are very new of saying things, you, you just watch it, you just notice it, like, there's got to be more to it than that. Uh, you're new. Uh, because the quality of attention can become red hot. Uh, the difference between noticing something and sustained, steady awareness that's able to stay with things, particularly, let's say, events that are no one wants to be with. Loneliness, uh, grieving, fear, and so, and so forth. That takes practice. So in order for this learning to happen, a number of uh, prerequisites are necessary. One is humility. Again, not posturing humility, not making some vow to be humble and walking around with a humble face. That would be more egotism. But actually, uh, genuine humility, some people seem to have it, and they're blessed, wonderful. But most of us, uh, we're, the ego is alive and well. And if we hear humility is important, uh, then it knows full well how to do an impersonation of being humble. The ego said, okay, if you reward me for this, I'll be whatever you want. The ego is shameless. At least mine is. Um, but can you see how humility is essential? It's another way of saying a real willingness to learn about yourself. Uh, a, an assumption here, which in the Buddha's teaching is really quite, it's all over the place, it's called delusion, is uh, you, we humans have a tremendous amount of self-deception. Um, and if you ask someone, do you have a lot of self-deception? You know, people will say, no, no, I have a pretty good sense. I've been in therapy, I've done extra, you know. Of course you don't know if you have self-deception. That's why it's self-deception. <laughs> but if, if you start paying attention Little by little, little it unravels itself. And some of what we have to face is not what we want to see. Some of our cherished images of ourselves, often we didn't even know we had it. Just break, break into pieces right in front of us. And there's a kind of grieving for it, for who I thought I was. Uh, and to say, well, it's just a delusion, it's easy to say that, but we, we've derived a lot of comfort and a kind of support from it for many years. And yet it's holding us back. It's just the notion that we've attached to. Uh, so that attitude is necessary. But I would say one of the main things we're learning here, self-knowing, uh, intimacy of practice, liberation, uh, at least in the context of these teachings, is impossible without the art of seeing, the art of, of observation, clear observation. Uh, because in order to learn something, you have to come in close, spend some time with it, and observe it. Now, the kind of learning that goes on here, some of it's in thinking. Sometimes we call that reflection. It's useful. 
But the deepest learning is not in words. The deepest real insight, you can't really practice insight. In a way, the name of our center here in Cambridge is the misnomer. Uh, you, it's insight meditation. You can practice meditation, but insights come or not. You can't practice them. Uh, we can lay the groundwork for it, which we're doing. So the art of seeing is, uh, is crucial for us. And whether you know it or not, that's what you've been developing. We've started out with the breathing. And you've been encouraged to bring mindfulness into walking, into every step, into eating, and so forth. The kind of seeing that is being talked about here uh, is something that we have to learn our way into. Because to begin with, we may think that we're really mindful or observing, but we, we're not fully aware of, of the, bias, the bias that accompanies the seeing. And what might that be? It's, we've had so much practice. The human mind has had a lot of practice calculating, scheming, doing this in order to get that. It's loaded with views and opinions, a, hi a long history of conditioning, of likes and dislikes. So when we see something, it's very hard not to interpret it, judge it, compare it with something else, like it, not like it, analyze it. All of those are blemishes on this mirror of clear seeing. They're not blemishes, it's dust. Clear, the clear seeing that we need, we already have. Each of us has it, this awareness. We're coming, that's our true home, and we'll get to that uh, more later. Uh, so what, but, but the same awareness that's obscured by our a lifelong tendency uh, to see things subjectively and uh, through some motivation can be seen too by that same, and it starts to thin out, fall away, fall away. Uh, and then the quality of seeing becomes truly more clear. This kind of seeing that I'm talking about has no past and no future. It's just, it's a mirror, a clear mirror with no blemishes, no cracks. It has nothing to do whatsoever with your past, with your conditioning. Uh, and that's the beauty of it. It's not for or against anything. It just sees. It's the energy of seeing. And that energy... Uh, is what has tremendous liberating power. Okay, and we're in the process of learning how to, to see, how to really observe. Um, and it can be learned, like anything else. Uh, and it goes, it's inseparable from, from this practice, everything we're doing. Whenever we say mindfulness, what is that? Okay, now that art, I'm just going to hint at this too, Let's say you, um, all of the um, subjective uh, tendencies that come from our past, uh, let's say that starts to fall away and the mirror seems very, very clear. Uh, there's always one step more to go. Uh, and this step is that, is the meditator, the observer, the one who's mindful. Uh, it's, that one is the ego camouflaged as a, as a yogi. It's, it's arrived here, and it, if you're new, and it finds out there's real cash value in being mindful. Take the breath. We, we could care less about our breathing, you know, unless we have a cold and we take medicines and so forth. 
Suddenly we find out the Buddha attains enlightenment, breathing, and there's this sutra, and this and that, and Anapanasati, and uh, articles written on it, books written on it. Wow, the ego finds out that being aware of the breath is useful for it, or to, to whoever, and then it just aims to please. Okay. So, finally, real meditation, hap- we, have to, we have to be rid of the meditator. The meditator is the problem. Uh, and meditation finally is seeing into the meditator. But there's a beauty to the Buddha's teachings. It's very, to me very, very realistic and practical. That is, it starts off allowing certain attachments realistically. How are we to start? I hear a lot more now about non-dualistic and advertisements for teachers who say like the non-dual way, uh, the dualistic way, bad. I teach the non-dualistic way. Uh, and it's become uh, an, another ideology, another slogan. I know what it means, and it's been around for thousands of years. But it's become another um, commercial. Uh, well, I've been in, uh, I've trained in, in uh, practices where right off they tell you about non-dual, and people just try to be non-dual, but they're just as dual. <laughs> uh, and it's... Uh, why don't we just admit it? We're egomaniacs trying to learn how to meditate. And that itself is a kind of bias because it's a self-consciousness. It's nothing new. When you're learning any new skill, you're a bit self-conscious. You want to learn how to do it well, how to do it right. Am I a good yogi? Is this what you mean by mindfulness? So there's something there that is do, that's the observer, the meditator, the, the mindful one. It's necessary. It's okay. But what I'm saying is the art of observation, that start, if you continue doing it, it starts to wither away and disappear. You, you may have moments of it, even at the beginning. You might, even those of you who are new might have had a moment here or there where it feels, ah, oh, the awareness is wonderful because you weren't doing it. Suddenly, for whatever reason, you got very concentrated, but that self-consciousness went into abeyance. abeyance. And suddenly, things are so clear. The grass is so green, etc. Um, so this art of observation is what we're uh, we need to learn, and we're refining it on and on. I don't know what perfection is. I'm uh, I enjoy the process of refining clear seeing. Uh, and so the clearest seeing is when there's no one doing the seeing, and that sounds perhaps very for those of you who are new mysterious and mystical, but uh, and some of you have come because you're intrigued with the new people, intrigued with the idea, at least you've told me that, of no self, not self. Wow, that sounds right. It's the, it is the self, the, an illusory idea that is doing the seeing of necessity. And it, it kind of self-destructs if it takes on this practice. Gradually, uh, it start, something else starts to happen. And once you start tasting a clear seeing, and you start seeing the immense price and suffering that we pay for our for being this or that, me or mine, self. Uh, we start to the, the romance is over for the egoti- for egotism. It still happens, but it's not something we're now starting to become sensitive to the the immense emotional cost that there is to not understanding our mind, and for to be enslaved to all the notions that we've picked up about who we are. Look, even parents who love us, 
and want the best for us. What we're, most of us, maybe if some of you are exceptions, I apologize, we're brought up out of love to be attached, to get, to accumulate, and that you are a somebody. Maybe that's necessary. I was told I was very important by my mom and dad. <laughs> most important little guy in the whole universe. <laughs> there are photographs to prove it. <laughs> And did they want me to get things and accumulate and feel? Sure they did. In fact, when I got into this stuff and I gave them headaches by telling them about this, uh, I soon stopped doing that. Okay. Um, perhaps what would be helpful now is some examples of uh, this uh, intimacy of practice. Because... Uh, I would like for that to be understood as very, very practical and something that you can easily take home and that it can really help you uh, when, once you leave here. And we have a nice, safe environment uh, to help launch this way of looking at things if you're drawn to it. So let me give you a few examples. Uh, let's, do you remember we left off with that uh, hypothetical vacuumer? Mr. and Miss uh, Tormented Vacuumer. Okay. Uh, I think we covered a lot of it. But there's another. Uh, was what is it to just vacuum, where vacuuming is, is intimate? Uh, and we were talking about obvious ways in which something is between us and the activity, like not wanting to do it, being uh, too good for it, or always hating it, memories coming up from... Uh, being told, it's your turn to vacuum. My sister and I rotated. That's you know, my memories. <laughs> okay. um, but, you know, in the go-around today, one of the things that, uh, I mean, I know this from the past, even if you say, oh, I had no problems, I loved my job, let's say this uh, vacuumer. I, I have no problem vacuuming, uh, no resistance whatsoever. Uh, I'm happy to do it. Is that intimacy of practice? Not necessarily. When you look closely, you don't have resistance to doing it, but as you're vacuuming, you may see that the mind is off gathering wool somewhere else. It's well, you're not totally aware of it. Uh, it seems like you're ha the happy vacuumer, but what's going on is uh, maybe the mind is back about something that happened during the week before you came up here, or it could be anything. You know, if you've been watching your mind even a little bit, anything can come up from any time period. True, imaginary, uh, it has poetic license. It can just deliver whatever it wants to. Uh, so that's between you and the activity of vacuuming. So in order to be intimate with vacuuming, all you have to do is begin to see that. To begin to see that there isn't resistance to vacuuming, it's just it isn't really holding my full attention and my mind uh, needs to entertain itself a little bit by running after this and running away from that. And it's light, no suffering, but also you're not intimate. Now, the intimacy of practice is, is the same thing as being fully in now. That's another, a lot of, uh, suddenly we've discovered now. Every, almost every book, commercials are having it. This moment, really, I've seen them now. There's now again. Uh, everyone's suddenly discovered that there is now, and that's the only place really that life happens. 
Well, in Dharma practice, we have to really understand that, and we'll, we'll get to that. And, because one of the things for each of us to learn is our self-knowing. Uh, as practitioners, as yogis, we have the same life experiences as everyone else. We bleed if we're cut. We we have sorrow if we lose someone we love. Uh, we do. The difference is we're learning a different way to relate to our experience that everyone else has. It's a very different way. It's quiet, a quiet passion. It's a very. It's turning the the, the mind around so that instead of either grasping or pushing away, it's more and more becoming aware of what is happening. It's living consciously. Okay. Um, so. The practice is, whatever it is you're doing, do it, and become sensitive to uh, what the mind is doing. Because the body may be doing the activity and doing it perfectly. The carpet is spotless. Great. And you're only partially there. The Chinese have a very strong statement, which I've always found very helpful. It's about this. When you're divided, when you're, when you're in action, they call that uh, killing life. That is, these are the ancient Chan masters. This is Tang Dynasty, Chan, a long time ago. You're, uh, if you're vacuuming and part of you is somewhere else, if you're hugging your child and part of you is somewhere else or whatever it is, it's killing life. You don't go to jail for it because you're not fully there. Put it the other way, when we're wholeheartedly and fully intimate with what we're doing, they call that giving life to life. And it's experiential. You are more alive when you're fully in the present moment. When the present moment is not mediated by all kinds of notions and ideas and yearnings and so forth, by a future tense and past tense, which is where we get lost so much of the time. Um, Some examples. I hope to, and I'm going to take them outside of our context here, so you understand what you may learn from if you're sweeping the cleaning the counter here or mopping or whatever your yogi job or tying your shoelaces or taking a shower. Uh, if you even uh, to some degree start turning the mind towards paying attention, that, that gives you a better chance perhaps of remembering to do it when you get home and seeing that it has endless applications. And it's all in the service of learning that, that at least is what is being suggested. You recall I quoted a, a, a referred to an editorial in the New York Times about what the, the point of view was that uh, a very important survival skill in the 21st century is uh, learning how to learn because things are changing so rapidly that uh, th- those people who can change, can sh- shift gears, can learn how to learn are the ones who have a chance of moving with the times. Uh, and it, it went in, a, there were a series of these editorials or articles. Another one was loving to learn how to learn. And, but it was mainly about learning technological skills and so forth. But I thought it was beautiful. That's what it, what's being suggested here, is uh, the Buddha is a great educator. He's encouraged, he's saying, the way you're living is not working. Do you see it that way? Or are you just totally delighted with how you live? Uh, you know, suffering-free, 
uh, I don't know what, a happy camper 24 hours a day? Probably not. Otherwise, why else would you want to come to this place <laughs> in, the, in July when you could be swimming and hiking, camping, you know, air-conditioned movie, wherever, but you're here. Whatever words you put to it, something got, you know, you paid your money and you packed up and you got here. What's that about? Why? Each one of us has to understand that. Okay. Um, if rather than trying to be the perfect, uh, okay, here's a new way to suffer. Uh, Dogen says, be intimate with all things. And Larry says, this is very important and it helped him a lot. I'm going to be intimate with all things. And then uh, we're not intimate with certain things. And then we're keeping score. And then the same old mind comes in. I'm no good. I can't do it. I'm a bad person. I'm stupid. Uh, this isn't for me. Everyone else is intimate, uh, just drowning in intimacy. And I'm uh, walking around here cut off and lost. Uh, take it moment by moment, the process of being open to life as you live it. Life keeps impinging on us and producing reactions. Those are the materials that we learn from. The reactions are conditioned events. They're mechanical. They come from our past. We can't help it. If you've been brought up and had the following experiences and the mind and body are conditioned a certain way, there's a tendency to react that way, a strong one. Air conditioners condition the air. That's what they do. That's what they change the quality of the air because of the way they're programmed. And we have these. And so when we think, even when we think we're free, often it's changing one pattern and fully embracing another. Dropping one ideological uh, total surrender and picking up another one. One uh, teacher who has total authority over us, and we find out we were exploited, and we get uh, annoyed and angry, and then handing it over to someone else. What the Buddha is saying is be a lamp unto yourself. There's help. The Buddha was certainly helpful. But finally, uh, each one of us has to do the work. How could anyone do self-knowing for you? Uh, what's being said is self-knowing, uh, all books, I've gotten a lot of benefit from book learning. But what the Buddha is saying, the most important book to read is the book of you. And that's not the one we necessarily want to read. Uh, and the books that we read that are good, that can get us to understand that the book of you is really the book that is the most important one on the shelf. And it never leaves you alone. That one. Because you can read all the books about what I'm talking about. They're endless. Videos and, and cassettes and uh, everything. Um, it won't necessarily make much difference. You'll feel good when you hear it. Hear your favorite teacher, nice voice, you know, the nice memories. Oh, yeah, that was at Spirit Rock. And I was, uh, it's looking in here. Okay. A few examples. Then not from IMS. That they really happened. Uh, this is many years ago. Somebody uh, comes into an interview and says, um, I just learned something because we've been doing some version of this for quite a while uh, in Cambridge. It's an urban center, and what we're trying to do is to, uh, that's why it was started, is to, without undermining the contemplative part, sitting, retreats, and so forth, uh, really 
enliven the importance, seeing the urgency of y your normal life as being practiced as well. This person comes in and said, uh, I've been eating this certain kind of French cheese for 10 years. Uh, and this person was from a generation where everything French was in. You know, you had to go to your junior year abroad, you had to go to France, and you had to learn French, in cert certainly in certain circles, in certain schools. French movies were in vogue, and so was French cheese. <laughs> the croissants were not always all over the place. I remember there were special places. They have croissants with French. Really? Where is it? You know, we go there, and then we felt like we were very intense, and, you know, uh, the Jean-Paul Sartre was sitting with us, you know, <laughs> uh, and that we were really quite bright to understand this as we had our, sipped our coffee with our pinky up, you know, smoked our cigarette and uh, ate a croissant and some French cheese. And what she says is, it's taken me 10 years, but I realize I don't really like the taste of French cheese. <laughs> okay, so what happened? Uh, the idea of French cheese was what she was eating. She was eating concepts for 10 years. And then the practice was encouraging people to really um, you see, the quality of seeing that's being talked about here, of observation, is to see things in a raw, naked way. Typically what happens, even when we think we're observing something, is we're cooking it. It's being cooked, cooked in ideas, concepts, prejudices, emotion, uh, desires, motivation, and so forth. It's, we're trying to see things in, in a raw way. Um, my first teacher, Krishnamurti, uh, he gave, started me off with meditation, not by sitting, we were taking a walk, and he just said, uh, I asked him, how do you meditate? And he said, well, take a look at, well, we stopped. There was a wooded area, and we looked, and there was, he said, look at a tree or a leaf or a plant, and so I picked something out. Now, fortunately, I don't know, know much about it, so I didn't have all kinds of botanical names, and uh, et cetera. But I still, my head was not fully there, and he would question me finally, can you just simply look at a leaf? And I found it very difficult to do. And then finally I said, yeah, uh, it was interesting. I saw all kinds of things in it that I believe was so much more interesting than I thought because it was so, the looking was so raw, uh, nude, naked. It ha didn't have any ideas that it was even a leaf. And then he said, okay, now just look at your mind that way. Okay, now uh, we do exercises sometimes in Cambridge. Uh, it's suggested go to the Museum of Fine Arts in Boston and pick out your favorite painting or the most famous painting. There's an exhibit coming through, the one that you studied the most about in art history. And see if you can just look at it in a naked way, just uh, the forms and shapes. Uh, and you'll see what crawls in all the time is all that you know about it. Rembrandt with this and that. And, and then also do it with classical music or any music. And you try to listen to uh, some Beethoven. And if you watch, you'll see in the mind is, yeah, I heard this in Vienna and, uh, with my girlfriend, and then we broke up right after, you know, and, uh, you know, and it's still a beautiful music coming through, but you're not intimate with it because the ideas are coloring it. They're in the way. And so as you, we're learning the art of this kind of clear seeing, not cooking reality. And of course, you can also use ideas when you need them. That's the amazing thing about the mind. The mind can get very clear 
And then when you need thought, it's not like you have amnesia. You know, or you just walk around. I'm very clear, I've had a lot of vipassana. Uh, is that you can draw upon thought when you need it. But it's an art. We, we're all learning that. Another example. Um, this one is more uh, speculative. What, what is the kind of cooking that's in New Orleans? Cajun. Cajun. Yeah, so it's sort of like a lot of fire on the fish. To me, it's burnt fish. Okay. Now, if somebody served that up to you in their home and they didn't tell you it was Cajun and just said, here's a piece of burnt fish. <laughs> uh, I think you would start wondering, uh, what kind of host is this? But if they say, it's Cajun. Oh, Cajun. You know, suddenly, oh, delicious, where do you get this? How do you make, give me the recipe. Okay. The last example is one, uh, okay. Uh, I personally am not attracted to Cajun. Or sushi, it's just raw fish. Okay. Oh, sushi. Uh, this is, uh, uh, so intimacy with practice is seeing through all that. You may still love it. If, if it still holds up, great. You're really tasting it, and it's, it tastes good. This happened, uh, uh, and then we'll, uh, uh, this is uh, something happened between my father and I. Uh, my father, um, who was, uh, I think, of course I would, he's my father, an extremely alert man, very intelligent, extremely intelligent, most intelligent person in the whole world. <laughs> Uh, he, uh, in his 80th, uh, 86th year, contracted Alzheimer's, okay? And we saw it ha coming, and then finally, it, it, unfortunately, he could no longer live with my mother. And uh, to our regret, and some of you know what this is like, we, had a, we uh, brought him to, I think, a very humane and nice nursing home, and we visited him often. Uh, and when I found out he had Alzheimer's, um, I started reading a lot about it. That's my, that's my particular thing. And I read all, as much as I could about it and the, uh, what causes it and we don't know and what might help it and so forth and symptomatology. Yeah, my dad has that. And the more I read, the more I, uh, my father more and more became the, the father who has um, Alzheimer's. And when I would visit him in the nursing home, it took quite a while for me to realize this, that... Um, I was either seeing my father through the haze of how he was when he was about 56, uh, which is when I remember him best being alert and vibrant, and also pain, of course. Uh, and so I wasn't seeing him how he was there because it was like memory was in between me. Then that, I, that wasn't so dominant. And then it took me a while. This was the harder one to see, that I, the diagnostic category, Alzheimer's disease, my father, that's my father, the father who has Alzheimer's disease. And it took me a while to realize that I wasn't really seeing him uh, because that diagnostic category is useful. It has uses, of course. Uh, kind of crept in, and it was like a, uh, a filter, a distortion. And there were times, well, once I saw this through doing this practice, uh, it was helpful to a point, and then I let go of it. And I was able to see him more clearly. 
not the way he was when he was 56, not as uh, Nathan with Alzheimer's disease, but this being who was there who sometimes made no sense. But there were times when he did make sense, where he seemed quite astute. And um, there were, then he'd lose it. Not only that, he wasn't totally miserable. There were times where he seemed very, very happy in the made-up world that he, that he constructed inside himself. And he, would, he was a, had a very good sense of humor, and he was just telling us funny stories which made no sense, and he would laugh. <laughs> and, you know, we would just sit there. <laughs> uh, and then I saw that was another one, another filter. The practice has so many applications. It really does. And I saw, well, why do we have to get the joke in order to laugh? Who said? So whenever he would tell a joke and I saw he really, he started laughing, I would just join in. He was ha-ha, I was ha-ha. And it made him so happy. And then uh, my mother and sister were saying, did you understand what that joke <laughs> I said, I said, absolutely not. And he said, but you were laughing. And they never quite jumped over, stepped out of the box, as we say. Um, now, I'm just going to end with this, because what we're encouraging you to do is to bring full awareness to whatever happens. The instructions are going to change tomorrow. In tomorrow morning sitting, uh, please come to the sitting after breakfast. Uh, okay. uh, or don't come, but it's all right. You know, the instructions will... Uh, well, we're going to open it up, and, and uh, the practice will include still the breathing, but also uh, whatever else is happening to you. And intimacy... It sounds nice, because intimacy is a good word, but what about if it's intimacy uh, with sorrow? What about if it's intimacy with fear? Uh, and we're learning how to do that. And everyone I've known uh, doesn't want to do it. We have resistance to it. That's why we haven't done it for most of our life. And we have tremendous strategies, which waste a tremendous amount of energy, of avoiding being in the moment with that. If that energy was not squandered by all the escapes, postponements, delayed, coping, and all the rest of it, just picture how powerful the mind would be and just direct it at it, whatever it is, and feel it, receive it. Um, and most people say, I can't do that. Or, uh, gee, maybe in two years I'll be able to do it, not right now. Okay. I have some cowboy wisdom, cowboy dharma. Uh, Woods uh, has challenged me. Uh, to introduce cowboy dharma to the to Western dharma, because I, I like cowboy movies. Sorry to disappoint you. You might think, oh, he's very spiritual. Not at all. Real lowbrow. Um, if any, <laughs> that, I don't need that, though. Okay. Uh, there's a program called Gunsmoke, an old one. Many of you have seen it. I never saw it. I never saw it when I was growing up, I, or when everyone was growing up watching it, I was busy probably reading or doing other things. So I never saw it. And now there are all these reruns of Gunsmoke. And when people put down a cowboy, like my wife thinks it's idiotic, you know, like, what are you, you're watching Gunsmoke, the scenery is terrible, the acting is terrible, you know, the screen is terrible, everything. I said, no, there's some wisdom there. And I said, where, where is it? Show me. There is. It isn't only happy ending and gotcha, you know, shoot it out. Uh, so the, the last episode I saw, I hope... <laughs> remember, I'm talking now about learning how to 
become awake to something you don't want to be awake to. Okay. I think this is saying that. Um, doc, <laughs> if you don't know what this is, or you're from Europe and you know what is he talking? About? I'm sorry, but it's an American cowboy movie from. Okay, uh, it's a series. Doc Adams uh, is called. Uh, it's like urgent. Uh, I've forgotten her name. Uh, let's. No, not Kitty. <laughs> Kitty. Kitty, the uh, Madame with a heart of gold. Okay. No. Uh, let's. There's this family, a couple, and there, and she's having a child, uh, Mrs. Jenkins, uh, Jim, and um, and Nellie Jenkins, uh, and she's having it. And uh, they say, Doc, you've got to get here. It's urgent. She's uh, almost, it's time to give birth. Uh, it's, and it's very far away, and it's a dangerous ride, and it takes a long time. And Doc gets his bag, and he's trying to get to them. And he, on the way, uh, uh, stops for a while and gets bitten by a rattle, rattlesnake. <laughs> and, uh, stay with me. And uh, falls down and is dying. And then Festus... <laughs> Sorry. Okay. Festus. Uh, what? Yeah. And, and anyway, so he, he he sees Doc and he saves him and brings him back to Dodge, which is where the, that's the town where all this happens. And then when Doc comes out of it and is uh, can, you know can speak again, and he says, "Well, how are the Jenkins? How's Nellie Jenkins?" And he said, "Oh, fine." Uh, Bob helped her, and, and, and she gave birth to her child, a nice, healthy child. And Doc gets really angry, and he says, Bob helped her, but the reason they, you know, they dragged me to go out there, and I, and I uh, got bitten by a snake and nearly died, is because he said he didn't know how to help her give birth. And so Festus says this. Oh, i got to remember it right. He <laughs> says, yeah, uh, so Doc is irate, and he says, yeah, but uh, Bob didn't know he knowed until he did it. <laughs> no, no, it's not. He didn't know he knowed until he'd done it. <laughs> so, <laughs> jump in. <laughs> okay. Can we have a moment's silence? Yeah. <laughs> Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.